Good morning. I bring greetings from really everywhere else in Kentucky. Uh, we got people in Paintsville, Moorhead, and Olive Hill, and traveling all over on vacations, praying for you all and for me this morning. Uh, but turn in your Bibles with me to Jonah. We're going to end it this morning. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 10, and read all the way through chapter 4. Now, last month in Jonah 3, we saw a lot of good things. We saw a wicked people repent and be saved. And Jonah, having been rescued by the great fish, he obeyed the word of the Lord. He went there. The Lord saved him. And we saw the prophet who was once rebellious walk in obedience. And now, if Jonah ended the chapter 3, it'd be like a fairy tale, happy ever after. But it doesn't. God gave us chapter 4, and he gave us that for a reason. So today, we're going to see a few things, and we're really going to see a tale of two hearts. We're going to see Jonah's rebellious heart. Then we're going to see the Lord really give a lesson to Jonah. And then we're going to see really what this book has been showing us all along, but really all the scriptures show us, and that is the compassionate heart of God. So we're going to see Jonah's rebellious heart, God's lesson for Jonah, and the compassionate heart of God. And throughout all this, as we hear this tale of two hearts, I want you to keep this question in mind. Whose heart does yours reflect today? Let's turn our attention to the word of God. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, 
You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Father, without you, these are words on a page. So would you teach us of yourself and conform us to your image today? So when we pick up at the end of chapter three, we see God looking down pleased. He is pleased with Nineveh's repentance. And as Jonah 4 starts, we get a stark contrast because Jonah is very displeased. He is angry enough to die. And displeased and angry enough to die, you can read those and it's like read past them. But if you're reading, if you could read Hebrew, I can't, but I read a bunch of guys who can. They translate this, and it was evil to Jonah that God did a great evil. So Jonah isn't just displeased, unsatisfied. He's not just a little angry that his way didn't go on. He abhors, that's a big word, he abhors, he vehemently hates what God has done. Jonah is often called the pouting prophet, and this isn't really pouting. This is full-blown toddler temper tantrum, like Looney Tunes, steam coming out of your ears, anger. And it's painting a picture of straight-up rebellion. So right away in chapter 4, we see the inkling of Jonah's rebellious heart. In reading this, we should be concerned about Jonah's response. Because God's happy, but Jonah's not. And we thought Jonah dealt with all this while he was under the sea and then drowning and then in the belly of a fish. And we thought he had changed his mind and turned. But it seems like his heart hasn't been completely reconciled to what God wanted to do. Because he was so happy, he wrote a song. He sang a song in the fish about Thanksgiving. He was full of praise. And now he's whistling a different tune. The whole point of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 was to thank the Lord for his goodness. And now as you read this, he's complaining about the Lord's goodness and his grace and his steadfast love. The whole tone of his prayer, which was once full of thanksgiving, is now like angry accusation. Did I not tell you, God, what would happen? He throws the character of God in his face like it's a bad thing. In this, this statement here, uh, we've read it in Exodus, it's throughout the Psalms, how God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. If you were to describe the character of God to someone, that's probably the words and phrase you would use. And throughout the Bible and in our lives, we sing songs about that. And Jonah uses it like it's a derogatory term. That's messed up. Imagine me yelling at my wife because of all of her best and godly attributes. How dare you take care of me and love our children and feed me each day and are kind to me when I'm not? I can't believe you did that. Yeah, that's what your wife would be doing too. And in that prayer, in Jonah 2, he's crying out for the Lord to save him. And in this one, he says, kill me if you're going to be good. 
That's pure, undiluted hatred towards a people. Jonah does not want to live in a world where Nineveh gets to live as well. It's also completely selfish. Look at Jonah's prayer again and notice this. I'm going to emphasize some things. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, all those saints continue. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. You can, you can hear the selfishness in Jonah's voice. He's presumptuous and self-centered. This prayer is based on his will. Jonah sees the Lord relenting as a great evil. Why? Because it's contrary to what Jonah wanted. Jonah would have God act contrary to his character to appease his own thoughts and orders of the world. It's really, it's Jonah's way or the highway here. God's graciousness, mercy, slowness to anger, steadfast love is only good as long as it happens to him or to his people, Israel. Only if it conforms to Jonah's parameters. Jonah's prayer here is a perfect example of the clay telling the potter what to do. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this whole thing is built backwards. Now, I don't want to minimize the appalling lack of compassion that Jonah has for the people of Nineveh. It's, it's quite apparent. Like, you can't think of a people group hatred, of strife, of genocide that doesn't look like what Jonah's speaking about to Nineveh. Really, the seeming bigotry and nationalistic preference that God's grace only go to Israel and himself articulates and displays this wickedness. It's apparent to us. And addressing that sin of nationalistic pride and closed-mindedness is one of the great reasons why God gave the book of Jonah to his people, especially the original audience, the Jews, as they returned from exile. And this story continues for us and for you and for the church until he comes again to really protect us and encourage us to make sure we keep our mind on whose we are and why we've been made his, to be a light to the world, to be a salt to this world, to spread his name throughout the world. But I don't want that to be the only application here. I want you to think about how your heart can be rebellious even when it doesn't have to do with another nation or people. Yeah, Jonah lacks compassion. He has a deep prejudice But at the very root of his rebellious heart is he insists on his way instead of God. And is this not what you do whenever you grumble? Whenever you murmur against what the Lord is doing? Whenever you complain about the lot you have in this life? Your heart is in the same rebellious state as Jonah's is when you do that. At the root of Jonah's anger and your own grumbling is discontentment, displeasure, and even maybe anger at the Lord for doing what he would will in his world and with his people. Are you grumbling that you haven't gotten that dream job or that promotion? 
is, it, is, is God only good when he blesses you? Are you mad that someone else is getting more opportunities or has been given gifts in greater measure than you? Is, it, is God only good when you are the center at the action? When you're part of the exciting growth or when you're the object of attention? Do you see how your grumbling is really your selfishness there? The wicked are prospering while you are barely scraping by. You're, but you're walking in faithfulness. But you're grumbling about it. Do you not know that the things of this earth will pass away, but you have the spirit as a seal of an inheritance, of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, yet you grumble that you don't have what you want on this earth? Maybe the Lord hasn't answered your prayer to remove that thorn in your side, whether it be your health, a particular issue, or another circumstance that you can't flee. Now, in none of this, I'm not saying you can't take your cares to the Lord. Like, the Psalms are full of people, full of fear, full of, like, enemies surrounding them. And they're going, how long, O Lord, or I feel alone. You're allowed to feel, and you're allowed to cry out. But you know that the psalmists don't say? Not a single one that I know of say that what God ordained isn't right. And that's what Jonah is saying in this book. And when you grumble against the lot that the Lord has given to you, you're saying what you're doing isn't right. And that's rebellion. What do you have to grumble against? You were once the Lord of your life. If you're now a believer, you were once the Lord of your life. And you found it to be quite empty. That's why you laid it all down at the feet of Jesus. And if you're still the Lord of your life, is that really going well for you? Do you feel fully satisfied when you lay down your head at night? Even if you were getting all of your heart's desires, you're going to be left empty in the end. And there's a song that I want to give you some words to. You probably know it. We sing it here. It's called, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. It's a good song to sing to yourself. Here are the first two verses. Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. So things are hard but he holds me that I should not fall. And so to him, the one who orders all things, I'll leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. It's narrow, sometimes it's harder, it doesn't feel as easy, but it's the proper path. So I take content what he has sent, and his hand can turn all my griefs away. And on that last day, he will turn all griefs away and wipe away every tear. So you can trust that whatever your God ordains is right. And the rest of that song is full of reminders that what God ordains won't always be easy, won't always be enjoyable. Essentially, it won't always be what you would pick. But it is right even when it's hard and uncomfortable and against your sensibilities, he is the God who will be present with you there. He will care for you until the end. He will never forsake you, 
until the end. And he will always give you comfort because he's the father of all comforts. And he'll sustain us. And most importantly, through all this, he will mold us into the image of his son. So beware of your grumbling. Decrease yourself and look to what the Lord is doing in your life. But as the story continues, this chapter shows us that despite Jonah's rebellious heart and despite really your own lapses in rebellion, the Lord remains gracious and merciful and slow to anger to you. He deals with us like a good father. We talked a lot in an earlier chapter about the discipline of the Lord, and he's faithful to discipline us and to educate us despite our rebellion because he loves us. And this is what he does to Jonah. Jonah's essentially spitting in his faith, and God doesn't smite him with lightning. He doesn't cast him back into the sea. He asks a question, and it's full of gentleness. This, this is the picture of a good mother correcting her child. He says, do you do well to be angry? And then what does Jonah do? He continues in his rebellion. Instead of responding to this discipline of the Lord, even this gentle correction, he stomps off in anger like a child out of the city to sit and to watch and to wait. And you can hear this question, do you do well to be angry? Maybe you're not angry. Do you do well to grumble? Do you do well to murmur and complain against your lot in life? That question is directed at you. Do you do well to put your heart in rebellion to what the Lord will do in your life? We need to deal with this question because the more you let your heart stew in rebellion like Jonah's, the more you're going to miss out on sharing in the joy of the Lord for what he has ordained for you. Just look at Jonah. His self-centeredness and his pride is keeping him from missing out the beauty of the moment. He is a prophet who might be the most successful prophet of all time, barring Jesus, because he sees 120,000 people saved in 40 days by saying just a few simple words. Repent, judgment is nigh. But he misses it. He stews in anger. He doesn't rejoice. If we were in his shoes, can you imagine how much seeing would be happening? I forgot how many days it was, but Asbury started seeing revival, and they had to close it down so they could return back to classes and normal living. They couldn't stop people from coming to seeing and saying what the Lord is doing in their midst. And if you continue in your selfishness, you're going to miss how the Lord is using you or how he might use you, and the joy of what he's doing all around you. You lose your eyes to see the goodness of the Lord when you're focused on your own will. So won't you trust that whatever your God does is right? But despite Jonah's rebellion, he's still precious to God. And although Jonah just railed against God's grace, mercy, and steadfast love, he gets this again because the Lord decides to bring a lesson to him and to continue to deal with him. So we're on to the next part, God's lesson to Jonah. I've been referring to Jonah being a 
Well, I guess I haven't yet. But this booth is a little stick hut. That's the word they use in the Bible. It's, uh, it's made out of branches, all propped together. I don't know exactly how they built it, but this is something they would do around harvest season. We have the festival booths, uh, the, the feast of the harvest. It has a few different names, but it's something that's common of the times. And all you need to know is Jonah knows how to build a little stick hut. And that's what he goes to do when he leaves the city. Why? Because he left the city where people live and wants to sit and watch this city. And a shelter like this would provide some measure of shade. Remember, he's in the Middle East. He's actually in what is now modern-day northern Iraq. And if you know nothing about the world, it's hot over there. They have temperatures that average above 100 degrees throughout much of the year. And so he's getting some shade from this. But you ever cut a branch down? Raise your hand. Was it on a hot day? You left it out, and then those leaves withered up pretty fast. So whatever shade Jonah had quickly withers away. And this is where the plant, or your translation might say, a gourd comes in. Uh, Gourds are the same plant category as like pumpkins and uh, watermelons and cucumbers. And if you don't know nothing about gardening, all these things are vining plants that have really broad leaves that shade the little fruit from the sun. And so as a vining plant, it needs a trellis to grow on. And this little stick cut is a perfect little trellis. So this plant that the God ordains to grow overnight grows around his little stick house and its leaves branch out and You sit under a shade tree before? Well, imagine he has his own little shade tree from a vining plant, and it feels good. It's the perfect type of plant to actually meet with Jonah, and the Lord knows this in his wisdom and makes it to grow to teach Jonah a lesson. And Jonah loves this plant, this Jonah is probably happy for the first time in this entire story. He is so happy. His frown turned upside down. He goes from being exceedingly displeased to exceedingly happy because of this plant. And this really, it's not because Jonah is a nitwit or has the attention of a goldfish and has forgotten why he's angry. He's not a toddler that's easily distracted by shaking the keys. If you were baking in the middle of the desert under a hot sun and a plant grew overnight and gave you shade, you would recognize that as the grace of the Lord and maybe even a sign that he is pleased with you. Jonah is probably sitting here going, look at the shade. The Lord cares for me. I think Nineveh is going to mess up. I'm watching them to mess up and I think they're going to be destroyed. My way was right. God's wrong. But that's not what happens here. Jonah doesn't know it yet, but he's about to. Because in this lesson, God is putting Jonah in Nineveh's shoes. While he's baking in the sun, he gets the grace of the Lord in the shade. He's sitting under this shade of mercy, barring him from the heat of the desert. And then God appoints a worm or a bug of some sort and Bugs and pests and worms are the bane of a gardener's existence. They can take down plants. And God appoints this worm like an assassin in the night, like a spec ops, Navy SEAL team, whatever it is, that overnight attacks this plant and it withers. The weather doesn't kill it. The worm sent by the Lord kills it. 
And then the next day, as this plant weathers and the sun is coming up, the Lord, just like he's done in this chapter and throughout the whole book, ordains his creation and sends a scorching east wind blowing down. Now, I did, I'm not a weatherman. Meteorology is not even a hobby of mine, but I, I, I googled what a scorching east wind is in the Middle East. And it's actually a, a very common wind that it brings very hot, very arid wind, often at high speeds and even many dust storms. Like, tourists hate the east wind because it makes their pictures cloudy and they can't breathe and they have allergies. So no one likes it. So Jonah's sitting here, losing his shade. It's getting hot. It is arid, which means he is thirsty and he is drying out from the outside. He is getting sunburnt. And he probably, if he has allergies, is starting to sneeze and cough. And he has sand in his eyes and no one likes that. He is uncomfortable. He's actually in bad shape. I, this translation is probably great. I'm no Hebrew scholar, but whenever I say that someone grew faint, it doesn't really impress me. Uh, they grew faint. I think of like a classic England of the woman fainting for no reason. Uh, but Jonah is in bad shape here. He's peeling from sunburn. He can't breathe. He's dehydrated, about to pass out. So you could really be tempted that, man, Jonah is a whiny baby who's being melodramatic. It's better for me to die. But no, he's actually on the verge of death. This is like the same language he's using when he's under the sea. I'm about to perish. It doesn't reflect it as much in my sensibilities of reading uh, what to be faint is, but that's what's happening, and that's what's being articulated in this text. And for the second time in our story, God comes back and asks a question. God's been putting Jonah in Nineveh's shoes. Do you see how he got the grace that Nineveh got, and Jonah was excited, and then he gets the scorching punishment of the Lord, the destruction of the east wind on him, what Jonah wants for Nineveh, he experiences. Jonah is supposed to be getting this. This is supposed to be an object lesson to to really have Jonah consider his own emotions and thoughts and correct himself to right thinking. And Jonah, God goes to Jonah, do you do well to pay the plant? And it's not, we see how backwards this is. Jonah gets more joy out of a little plant than he has out of the salvation of 120,000 souls. That's, that's tragic. And he bunkers down in his rebellion. He goes, yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die, answer my prayer, I'm unchanged. And it's in God's response to Jonah that we really get the point of the lesson for Jonah. And that's really to show God's great heart of compassion for his creation. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left and also much cattle? And this response is God analyzing for Jonah, to Jonah, 
Jonah's emotions. He goes, this, this is my paraphrase, you didn't plant it, Jonah. You never, you never tended this plant. You don't have any longstanding connection to this plant. Did any of you have a favorite tree as a child or as an adult? Just a tree you love? Maybe a berry, a berry bush you love to go picking in and making jelly with the family? If this was that for Jonah, his anger might make a little bit more sense because he has memories under that tree. They, he made jellies with mammal with those berries they picked. But this is a plant that he knew overnight. He knew it for a day. It's gone. He's angry enough to die over the destruction of this plant. God's going, your attachment can't be that deep. Do you not see how unbalanced this is, Jonah? And now God compares his love and really shows it to Jonah. He goes, what is your hurt over mine? Let's put this all into perspective, Jonah. I am the author of life the creator and sustainer of all things. This is my world. Day in and day out, I make the sun burn and make the world warm. I make the rain to fall so the crops grow, people eat, and cows have water. I give attention to every lily of the field and clothe it more than Solomon's splendor. Not a sparrow falls without me knowing, and I feed them each day. You hear those cattle lowing down the hill? You hear those people crying out for mercy down there, Jonah? I care for them. Their owners, those people, I love them. They're my greatest creation. They reflect my image. Your, your pain is nothing compared to me when I contemplate their destruction. Remember what we learned last month in chapter three. God certainly is faithful to judge according to his great justice, but he does not delight in destruction. The Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And all rebels against his law, Nineveh, these wicked people are still created beings who bear his image and were created to love and be loved by God. And God has still been very active in their lives. Unlike Jonah's role with the plant, throughout all their wicked lives, God has tended for them by keeping all the laws of physics and weather going. He has cared for them. He has ordained all things that they might be a great city. He cares for their lives. He cares for our lives and everyone's lives in this world. We often forget about these little details, but he cares for his creation so much. He not only knows all the hairs on your head, but he knows all the hairs on the head of all his enemies who hate him and slander him across this earth. He cares and knows intimately, is involved in his creation. And our God is a God whose heart is filled to the brim with compassion. And it's this compassion that led him to work to see that the salvation was accomplished to Nineveh because they were willing to repent and to change. And it's this compassion that led God to relent when Nineveh repented. 
And God had compassion on them even when they didn't know their right hand from their left, which once you're about five or six is a pretty easy thing to do. We even have this little L trick for when you mess up. But that means all that he's saying here is they know nothing compared to what we know now. And they knew nothing compared to Jonah or the rest of Israel who had the very words of God given to them who were raised, or supposed to be raised, knowing them. And Jonah definitely remembers that Israel has been set apart. That's why he says, grace to me, death to them. But he's forgetting, or willfully forgetting, that his purpose was to be a light to the world. He's supposed to have a measure of compassion on the rest of the world, not just wish for their judgment. But instead of becoming more like their God, Israel and Jonah, They did what was right in their own eyes. They followed their rebellious hearts to the point where the Lord exiles them from their land and takes them away from it. But God's purposes for this world weren't going to be thwarted by a stiff-necked prophet or a stiff-necked people. His compassion was greater than their rebellion and their stubbornness. Jew and Gentile alike. His compassion was so great that he sent a light into the darkness. And at the right time, because of his great love, his great compassion, he sent his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And in Jesus, we've heard this so many times, we have one who is so much greater than Jonah and the people of Israel. In this book, wherever Jonah disobeyed, Jesus obeyed perfectly. Where Jonah's death, as he went under the waves, saved a few, Jesus' death saved all who repent and believe in him. Where Jonah was as if one dead in the belly of the fish, Jesus actually died, suffering the wrath of God for your sins, and then was actually raised again to newness of life, and now he's the first fruit of the dead, the firstborn of a new creation. Where Jonah was given words from God to speak, Jesus was the very word of God come to us to show us what he is like. Where Jonah's heart was full of rebellion, pride, and hatred for his enemies, Jesus' heart was always like his father's, filled to the brim with compassion. And we see that compassion in his heart through the gospels. Who did he come? Who did he spend time with? Not the high and the mighty. He went and spent time with lepers. He spent time with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, all of those who didn't live according to the law. And he had compassion on those who were blind and healed them. He had compassion on the crippled and healed them. He spoke to a Samaritan woman at the well, a serial adulterer. He had compassion. And he was always full of compassion. Throughout, I don't have time to read all these things, but throughout the Gospels, when the crowds follow him, he has compassion on the crowds. Sometimes it's because they're hungry, but sometimes it says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he was the great shepherd who wanted to lead them all to the straight, narrow path through the gate to everlasting life. 
It's actually closely associated, like two verses after, that he goes, compassion on all these people who need a shepherd, that he says that verse that's so well known. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He saw the need for hope and healing in this world because he knew they were destined for death. And Jesus didn't just have compassion on the poor and the weak. He had compassion on his enemies. When he was on the cross, after he had been mocked, abused, scorned, nailed, suffocating, do you know what his words were to the crowds who ridiculed and mocked him? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There's a well-known song. You'll know the line. It was your sin that put him there. So if you've experienced his grace, he had compassion on you, his enemy. He still has compassion on his enemies. If you're rebelling against him, he says, come to me, all who are weary or heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will save you. Does your heart look like that? Is it filled with that compassion? Are you too busy grumbling because you don't got the job you want or things aren't going well for you or your child isn't obeying the way you hope they would? Do you know how we grow in compassion? If you're here this morning, I actually think Jacob Balk's testimony was a great picture of it. He says, I don't know where you are, but you said four years ago, there you are. You said four years ago, people would have laughed if you asked how you're empathetic to people, that's your heart. And what he shared was, I became less prideful. I was humbled. When you decrease, you give space for Jesus to increase in your life. And if you've been saved, you've been united with Christ, which means your heart is new. And it's not just this new heart that's free to do it at once. It's united with Jesus and the Father whose heart is full to the brim of compassion. So when you die to yourself, there's only space for Jesus to live through you. But we have to beware. Here's a quote. A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart. That flesh that's crucified, writhing in his death throes, but still alive. And it's a whimpering, his insidious message of smug prejudice. You might hate a people group or a type of people or left-wing ideologies. Don't do that. Have compassion on them. You might Love empty traditionalism. This is the right way. And anyone who doesn't do it this way, no compassion. It's our way or the highway. Or you might love exclusive solidarity. You might have such apathy to the world that you only care about the people in this room. And you were saved for more than that. You're actually given a commission to come to this room, to worship, to encourage one another, but to go out and make disciples. And guess what? You're already disciples. The people that need to be made disciples, you might be in this room, and if you are, repent and believe. But most of them are out there, walking after their own lives, living in rebellion. And we will pursue them more when we have compassionate hearts like his. There are a lot more I can say, but we're running out of time. One thing that you should talk about with one another is how do we take this compassion outside of these walls? How do we share it with those who are the enemies of God, but who can be brought near and made friends? Let's pray. Father, I thank you 
for your compassion that you didn't, you didn't destroy us when we sinned. You actually promised you'd never destroy this world again so that your promises and purposes would come to pass. We thank you for the great grace of your son. Amen.